Welcome to this message from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon. City Bible Church is a vibrant community of people with one common desire to experience God, enjoy people, and celebrate life. We are working on the word atmosphere. This morning we're talking about the atmosphere of worship, the atmosphere of lifting of hands. And I want to deal once again with this important subject as we build an atmosphere in our lives, our homes, our business, and in our church. An atmosphere is made up of the principles, the behaviors, the attitudes, the convictions, the values that you carry as an individual. Every person is a carrier of atmosphere. Now, here's three summary statements of What I've done so far that brings us up to this morning, we are carriers of a specific atmosphere. You carry it into the service today, a specific atmosphere. You carry into your week, a specific atmosphere. We are capable of setting an atmosphere. You can change the atmosphere in your mind, in your heart, in your own inner world. You can also change the atmosphere in your home. We can change the atmosphere of a church service by certain principles and disciplines of spiritual response to the Holy Spirit and the presence of God. We are responsible for the atmosphere of our church. We, not I, but we are responsible for the atmosphere of our church. It's not carried by one man, not carried by a worship band, not carried by the lightings and the decors, not carried by an individual. It's carried by the entire congregation. We're responsible to set that atmosphere, and because we know that, we carry a certain DNA into the church service, all right? An atmosphere, as I define it, is the spiritual DNA of prayer, praise, and power. Now, there's more that goes in the atmosphere. I'm aware of that. But the three ingredients that you build on is prayer, praise, and the power of God. If you don't have prayer, praise, and the power of God, church becomes very religious. Church can be very dead. Church can be very routine. Church can be very organizational. Church can be very, well, whatever. But it's not supposed to be. Church is supposed to be a place where God touches and God moves and God does his thing. Prayer is the foundation to that happening. Praise is the gate that opens. The power of God is what comes through that gate as we open to the presence of God. Prayer and praise are basic foundations for the spiritual atmosphere that we build. That's why we will not allow people to be spectators. We will do everything we can to move you into being a prayer. I want you to turn to your neighbor right now and say, I'm going to be a prayer. I want you to say to the other neighbor, if you have one, I'm going to be a praiser. A praiser. Not sure if that's the right word, but it sounds right. I'm going to be a praiser. I'm going to be a prayer. I'm going to be a person who activates my faith. Now, there are times when you come into the service that you can't be a carrier of victory. You don't carry the victory of God into the service because you're in the valley and you're in a trial. You're in a physical problem or maybe you don't even know God. Maybe you're a prodigal. You're away from the Lord. Maybe you're just in a seeking mode on a journey to find the living God. And so you come to the service of a different mindset. That's why the rest of us need to carry the river of God and the presence of God in such a way that God can easily touch your life and the atmosphere can melt your heart, move your mountains. 
redefine for you how God loves you and what God wants to do in your life. That happens in an atmosphere where the presence of God is moving. Prayer and praise are basic to that. Now, this is how I define a worshiping church. Worship creates an atmosphere where God moves in. Everyone say, moves in. Now, church for us is where God moves in. Not that it has to be a high-peak emotional time every time. Not that you actually have to have goosebumps every time. But something spiritual should happen in church. There should be an encounter, an infilling, a, a virtue refuel, a reforming of the mind, a helping of the heart. There should be a spiritual level of activity that actually ministers to the Spirit in you. Well, for that to happen, God has to move in with His presence and power drawing people to be touched, healed, forgiven, and saved. We evaluate every service we put on. We evaluate. The executive leadership team, the pastoral team, The worship teams, different leadership teams evaluate their part in the service. One of the measuring rods for us to hit the target for church, how were the altars? Were people being touched? Was anybody saved? Was anybody healed? Was there reconciliation going on between people who had offenses or marriages who were in trouble? What happened in that service? Well, boy, we sang some great songs. That's good. Let's go another step, a little higher. What happened with the song? Were the people engaged? Did God move? Were there people restored? Were there people touched? Was there any shedding of tears anywhere? Was there anyone coming out of that service saying, I met God today? Did they leave the service saying, you know what? I really, really, really needed that. I can't believe I was so dry. I can't believe I was so empty. I can't believe that I was so weak in the situation I'm in. But today when I left that service, I just felt so full of God and so full of faith and so ready to encounter life again. Church is a place where God touches and heals and saves and cleanses and forgives and moves on the human heart. Can I hear a big amen? Very important for us. Worship. All right, we are worshipers. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Now listen to the wording. Then all the people answered, a response of people. Amen, amen. Kind of sounds like City Bible Church. Always talking back to me. Everyone said amen. amen. Everyone said Hallelujah. Well, it's in the Bible. Ezra was a teaching priest. And all the people answered him and said, Amen. Amen. Notice what it says. While lifting up their hands. Well, I thought that was just a funny Pentecostal thing that they did around here. Well, I thought that was just a kind of a charismatic church expression, whatever that is, a charismatic church. Oh, you are those people that do all kinds of physical calisthenics during the service. Oh, I know what church you are. Oh, I remember going into your church because everybody had their hands up for some reason. 
Boy, it's a pretty funny thing. What do you have, a string on the seat or something where a spring hits the bottom of everybody? And all of a sudden they feel it and they put their hands up? What goes on in that church? No, it's not a spring. It's not a string. It's not some kind of a gimmick. It's actually in the Bible. Lifting of hands is something that is biblical. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's biblical. While lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads. Notice what it says. And they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Well, wow, that's quite a worship service. Have you been in church lately where the people shouted back, amen, lifted their hands, bowed their heads, bowed their self to the ground and worshiped God with great heart? I call that a good church service. That's what I call that. I don't call that Pentecostal. I don't call that charismatic. I don't call that Hillsongy. I don't call that Matt Redmond. I don't call that. It's nothing to do with what people are doing nowadays. It has a lot to do with what the Bible says do to respond to God. Lifting of hands did not start with a church. It started with the Bible. And bowing your head. And saying things out loud. Part of a good culture that we believe in. First Timothy 2 and verse 8. I desire, therefore, that men and women pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, Hmm. without wrath and doubting. Lifting of hands has in the scriptures a specific, particular theology. If you follow lifting of hands right from Genesis to Revelation, you would have to write a lot of pages. Because the lifting of hands is an expression that the Bible teaches very clearly for a specific reason. A lot of times people will lift hands without knowing this. And so I want to just kind of give you more conviction, more principle, more foundation to stand on. So that when you do lift your hands, there's something in you with conviction and knowledge on why am I lifting my hands? Why am I doing this? Lifting of hands to God, here's a short little definition or a concept definition that I would use for lifting of hands. Hands stretched toward God release the whole person to express a greater degree of sincerity and intensity. If you would take all the scriptures... Go through all the places in the Bible and all the characters, you would find this conceptual definition working pretty good. Hands stretched toward God, release the whole person, spirit, soul, and body, to express a greater degree of sincerity and intensity. Lifting of hands arises out of the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. First Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God to Jesus Christ. Now, this verse is taken from the book of Exodus and from the Old Testament ideology that there was temples and they built houses and they had priesthood and they offered sacrifices. Peter takes the tradition and the history and he turns it right around and through the cross, he doesn't spiritualize it. He answers what was happening in the old and how it predicted what the New Testament would be because after Christ, there's no more temples to be built. 
There's no more animal sacrifices. There's no more one family called Aaron or the Levites that are the priesthood. And so Peter just takes it right through the cross and says, by the way, this is what this meant. First Peter 2, 5, you're living stone. You're the temple now. You're built up a spiritual house, not a house of mortar and brick and stone. And you are to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Forget the animals. Forget this. It's now a spiritual thing because you are a holy priesthood unto God. First Peter 2 verse 9. But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may notice what it says. Proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his Marvelous life. So we're a priest. Now, whenever you say to someone, you're a priest, they probably have in their mind all kinds of different images of what a priest is. The black robe, the white collar, uh, the clergyman, the person putting communion in people's mouths, uh, the counselor, the professional, etc. But in the New Testament, that is not what the word priest means at all, and that's not the concept. The church that has taken on the priesthood look and had gone all the way with still having a certain class of people to do everything for the people is actually a very unbiblical thing. The Bible knows nothing about it. History established it. The scriptures never did. And so the apostles immediately begin to establish that the congregation is all on one stand. They're all on one foundation. The congregation now has all the same accessibility. There is no special class of people like in the Old Testament where only the high priest could go in one time a year on the Day of Atonement. That was the only person one time a year out of 365 days. One man was able to go in and experience the presence of God and the glory of God and experience the voice of God. All that happened in the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. That's what the Bible says. He heard the voice of God. He felt the presence of God. He was in that most holy place. And everybody would wait for him to come out, make sure God accepted their sacrifice, and they were blessed for another year. The priesthood was a very special class of people. But in the New Testament, that is not the case. In the New Testament, Peter takes a huge leap and he says, all, everyone say all, All. are priests unto God. All are holy priesthood. All are royal priests unto God. He takes a huge leap theologically from those who had tradition otherwise to say, by the way, there is no more veil. It's been rent. By the way, there is no more day of atonement. Every day is atonement. By the way, there's no special class of one person who can fill in one. The rest don't. There's no special class of people. You're all special. You're all holy. You're all priests. You're all approaching God. You're all moving in the most holy place. You can all feel his presence, hear his voice, and experience the glory of God. Somebody should shout hallelujah right now. There's something special about being a priest. The word priest itself is interesting. The word priest from the Latin means a bridge builder. And I like the word bridge builder. In the, in the Hebrew or the Greek, one who stands before the Latin, a bridge builder. A bridge builder is a person who helps us cross over from here to there. Now, this is what I want you to see in your priesthood. You actually build a bridge with your worship to cross from here to there. Worship is a bridge. And there is a crossing over. There is an atmosphere change. There is a moving from to. 
And those who have priestly knowledge, who understand that they are all kings and priests, and they are building a bridge to move from here to there, understand the power and the authority there is in worship. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6 says that he has made us kings and priests. Revelation 5 and verse 10 says he's made us kings and priests. Priestly worship would go something like this. The act of giving praise that connects God's throne to the needs of people. There's something about moving into worship that builds a bridge that connects the ever power of God, that ever ready power that's always there, but there's a connectability, there's a releasing, there's a specific focus in our worship to bring that presence and apply it to a person's need or apply it to our own heart or to allow the Holy Spirit to do something in us and through us for other people. Worship is a bridge building experience. Priestly worship establishes a route between the invisible and the visible. You actually move from living All your hours in the visible realm. We live, we work, we eat, we sleep, we drive, we go through all the physical things of living. Everything about our life is about what we see, what we feel, what we can actually uh, move in our five senses. Our whole world is built around the tangible and the visible. But there are some minutes in the day, and especially when we come together for worship, where you should move from the visible to understand there's an invisible and there's more beyond your life. There's more beyond what you see, what you touch. There's more beyond your needs. There's more beyond what you have in your check. There's more beyond because there's a God in heaven and God wants to connect you to his resources and his power. And worship helps transform our mind to remember that we are sojourners and there is an eternal realm beyond our lives. Worship stops The human heart and mind for a moment to say, oh, yes, there is a living God. And my mountain is big, but God is bigger. You know what? My needs are before me. But Lord, you said, and you begin to transform your thinking to a spirit of faith. Priestly worship establishes an atmosphere that expands the possibilities of responding to God. When there's a true presence, there's a true response. You start responding with your mind, with your heart, with your thoughts, and also with your physical expressions of kneeling, clapping, shouting. Priestly worship establishes an atmosphere of touching the seeking soul. Those that are in that mode, worship begins to touch their heart and lift them up, fill them with hope, just in the presence of worship. A worship can be expressed a number of ways. And the Bible talks about this. Psalm 34 verse 1 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. You can speak worship. Worship can be in your mouth. My praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalms 47 and verse 6 says, sing praises, sing praises, sing praises, sing praises to God. So obviously worship involves singing. Psalm 47 and verse 1 says, shout to the Lord with a voice of triumph. Psalm 63 and verse 4 says, I will lift my hands in your name. Psalm 33 says, play on the instruments. Play skillfully under the Lord. Also, Psalms 150 goes through that. Psalms 
134 verse 1 says, stand before the Lord. Psalms 95 verse 6 says, bow before the Lord. Psalms 149 verse 3 says, dance before the Lord. Now that would be a, a freedom for some people to actually dance. The word dance in Hebrew means to jump, twirl under a violent emotion. So it's not something where you just kind of tap your foot and move a little here and move a little there. If you, if you got hit with this kind of a spirit of worship, we would know you got hit. There's a physical expression to worship. There's a response where you use your hands, your arms, your mouth, your feet. You use your body to express what's going on inside of you like you do with your life. Like if somebody ticks you off and you, you know, shake your fist at them. You are expressing, like if you walked up to me this morning and shook your fist in my face, I would know that it's not, I love you. It might be something more. Why? Because it's a, you're expressing what's inside of you. Or if you came up and put your arms around me, I would know that you're not saying, and I hate you. You're saying, I love you. Aren't you? <laughs> you would hug a person because you want to express or a hearty handshake. Or if you make that 65-foot putt, what do they do? They walk around the green. Even Tiger Woods worships God. (laughs) Just so that you know, last week, my son and I were golfing. We were tied on hole 18. I was off the green almost in the sand trap, 70 foot from the cup. I putted it and dropped it and beat my son. And when I did that, I lifted my hands and said, there's a God in heaven. Why, your your expressions of your physical being expresses something going on in your spirit. If you come into the worship service, if you came in on any campus, any service, and you're like, don't take this as a judgment, just an illustration, but if you come in and your hands are hanging down, we're singing, Savior, he can move a mountain. (laughs) Your physical expression, and the Bible says in Isaiah, The hands that hang down are an expression of discouragement and brokenness, hopelessness. Giving up, my hands are hanging down. Or a mouth that cannot speak. Or hands that can't clap. Or musicians that can't play because they're in Babylon and in bondage and they have no expression. The Bible has a lot to say about how that has to be broken off of a person. When Jesus healed the woman in the Gospels, remember the woman who was bent over for all those years? She was bent over and could not unbend her physical frame. When Jesus prayed for her, he did not say, be unbent. He simply spoke to the spirit that had bent her body. And when he spoke to the spirit that bent her body, she came upright and was healed. Sometimes a physical problem is a spiritual problem. 
And that's why it's so important for you in an act of faith and an act of freedom to be able to express to God how you feel and what you say. For your words are a snare or your words are a gate that opens the spirit of faith and the spirit of God in your life. And so the devil comes in to snare your mouth. Where you can't even hardly sing the words, you just mumble them out because you have no faith to even say, Jesus, Savior, mighty to save, move my mountain. You're just so, that's where you've got to pick up the spirit of faith and the spirit of worship and break out of that bondage and fill your mouth with good things and fill your spirit with a spirit of faith and break off the darkness and lift your hands and shout to God. And I guarantee you, your physical expression will break something inside of you. It's connected, folks. Lifting of hands. What's the benefit, biblically? And why would I say to you, lift your hands? Here are seven reasons why you should lift your hands, biblically. Not Frank DiMazio doctrine, just scriptures. Why you should lift your hands and the spiritual benefits, what happens when you lift your hands. Number one, lifting our hands is lifting our hearts to God. When you lift your hands, you're actually lifting your inner heart, your world. You're lifting that which is silent. Your hands give your heart a voice. Your hands give your heart and expression. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 41. Let us lift our hearts with our hands to the God of heaven. Let us lift our hearts with our hands. There's something about spreading your hands up and saying, oh God. Here I am. My heart is hurting today. And I'm lifting my heart up. My heart is filled with contradictions and bondages. My heart has been stomped on this last month. Or my heart is so full, I just need to say something to you, so I'm going to lift my hands. And you lift your heart with your hands. Psalms 143 and verse 6, spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you. Lifting of the heart with lifting of the hands is a sign of intensity. It's simply saying, ah, I, I'm thirsty for you, God. Psalms 88 and verse 9. My eye wastes away because of my affliction. Maybe you came in with affliction. Lord, I have called daily unto you. I have stretched out my hands. You lift your heart, your afflicted heart, your thirsty heart, your hurting heart. Whatever is going on in your heart, when you lift your hands, put some words to your heart. Number two, lifting our hands is an act of surrender. It means that I relinquish control. I give up. I surrender. Wow, what a great reminder. 1 Kings 8.22, and Solomon stood before the altar. Everyone say, the altar. Every one of you build an altar every time you worship. Before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven. Verse 38, whatever prayer, whatever supplications made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart, 
and spreads out his hands toward this temple. Verse 54, Solomon's response. So it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord. He arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees. He actually went and got on an altar he built. He was the first Romans 12, 1 and 2 person. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is what Solomon was doing. He built an altar, and they understood altars in those days because they sacrificed on that particular day thousands of animals. But he had a special altar he built for himself. So he went over and knelt on that altar. Verse 54, and he spread his hands toward heaven, and he prayed a prayer of dedication. He simply says, I am the sacrifice. I give my life to the living God. I surrender leadership into his hands. Lord, you help me go in and go out. You help me judge this people because without you, it'll never be done. So I relinquish my kingly control over all of this. I surrender to you. Every time you lift your hands, you have things to surrender. You need to surrender your life. Surrender your manipulation. Surrender your anxieties. Surrender what you're trying to put in and make happen, and it's just not happening, the job you want, what disappointment, I can't make it happen. The person you want to marry, they don't want to marry you, and you can't make it happen. Or if you're married, you want to have children, and you just can't make it happen. Or you want to start a business, but you can't get the right loan. Or you want to, want to, want to, want to, want to, and you have all these things you want to do. There are times when you come to church where you just spread your hands toward heaven and say, I give up. It is not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And Lord, I give up. I can't make it happen. I can't control this. I don't know how to do all these things. Nothing's working the way I thought it would work. And everything is a curveball to me. And God says, it's okay. I'm in control. Let go. Well, to let go, I want everybody on all campuses to spread your hands out right now. Just spread them out. Just spread them out. Some of you for the first time. It's all right. Father God, right now, we let go. Lord, we let go of those things we can't control. We let go of those things we don't like. We let go of those things that don't work the way we think they should work. We let go of the people that don't do the things we want them to do. We let go of the children that don't serve you the way we want them to serve you. We let go of the boss who always makes the decision I don't like. We let go, Lord, we let go of everything in our life. And Lord, we surrender to you. You are Lord this morning. You're the God that I submit to. And Lord, I surrender my life right now in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, number three, lifting of hands is a sign of intense prayer. Psalm 28 and verse 2. Hear the voice of my supplication when I cry to you and I lift up my hands. Lamentations 2.19. Rise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the watches. 9, 12, 3, 6, 12. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward him for the life of your children. Who faint from hunger at the head of every street. This is an intense time, an intense prayer. 
Psalm 77 and verse 2, when I was in distress, I sought the Lord. This is a very, very good verse. I sought the Lord at night. Now listen to what it says. I stretched out my untiring hands and my soul refused to be comforted. Untiring, stretching, just this is intense prayer. Number four, lifting of hands is a spiritual weapon to gain victory in your life. You might not know this, but it's true. It works. It's principle. Exodus chapter 17 and verse 10, Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. Remember down in the valley in Rephidim, Joshua was going to fight with Amalek. He was outnumbered. He should not win the battle. And the battle goes on most of the whole day. Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hands that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hands, Amalek prevailed. Now, can you imagine what Moses was going through as he's on top of the mountain there and he's watching the battle? And every once in a while he'd go, Oh, God, help Joshua. And all of a sudden Joshua starts winning. Oh, God, yeah, come on. Puts down his hands. Amalek starts winning. No, no. Oh, God. Joshua starts winning again. Puts down his hand. Amalek starts. Pretty soon he goes, Oh, down. Oh, oh, down. There's a key here. So that's when he called for Aaron and her. And he said to them, Take my arms and lift them up for me. Because he is tired. And as soon as they held his arms up, Joshua never went backward again, prevailed and defeated the enemy. There's a connection between the spirit realm and physical activities. You might not want to believe that. But the fact is, in Exodus chapter 17, it happened. Oh God, I hear you. Okay, huh? Come on, Moses, get those hands up because those hands are recognition of my lordship and my working and my grace. And when you do that, I release that right into that situation. You've got to learn this. This is something you have to have a conviction for. Moses learned on that day. Psalms 144, verse 1. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war. Wow. And my fingers for battle. Could it be worship? Micah 5, 9, your hand shall be lifted against your adversaries and all your enemies will be cut off. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not in the natural realm, but they are mighty in God, pulling down strongholds. Everyone together, here you go. Are you ready? Lift your hand. Come on, this is... A lifting hand service, a lifting hand church. Lift your hands right now. If you have an enemy in your face, if you have a problem that's come against you, wave at me right now. Wave at me if you have something where you would like God to break through and do something awesome in that situation. Lift your hands right now and let's stand in the gap. Father God, right now, we stand in the gap and we believe for spiritual victory in the lives of every person. Lord, we push back Amalek this morning. Lord, we push back the enemy that would try to prevail over our family and our children, our finance and our physical bodies. Lord, we stand in the gap today with intensity, lifting up holy hands without wrath or doubting. 
Oh God, move in our situation. In Jesus' mighty name. Everyone said. Number five, lifting of hands is like the making of an evening sacrifice. Interesting scripture. Psalms 141 verse 2. Let my prayer be set before you like incense. Well, we know what incense does, the aroma, the beauty. And the lifting of my hands like the evening sacrifice. The evening sacrifice was the burnt offering given in the morning and the evening. And David says, now listen, God, can I make a deal with you? I don't have time to offer these animals every time I need to because I'm on the run. Saul's out to kill me. I'm going from cave to cave, wilderness to wilderness, and place to place. I can barely even have time to stop and fix myself something to eat, let alone offer animals on the altar. Can I have time to build an altar? Can I make a deal with you? God said, what do you have in mind, David? Well, when I lift my hands, can it be just like me making a sacrifice? God says, that's a great idea. Yeah, we can do that. So when I lift my hands... It's just like I've done the burnt offering. The fire of God has fallen. Exodus 29 is the scripture we're after here. In Exodus 29 it says, when you make an evening sacrifice, God says, I will meet with you. I will speak with you. I will sanctify you. I will show you my glory. David says, now when I lift my hands, will you let the evening sacrifice be equivalent to these hands? God must have agreed, however they came to agreement. I'm, I'm kind of giving you my version of how they came to agreement on Psalm 141, verse 1 and 2. But the fact is, David got an insight somehow. David says, you know, my hands can be just like a sacrifice. Guys, uh, you jumped a few generations ahead because after the cross, that's exactly what it will be. Matter of fact, David, you're a man living with the truth of the cross. Amen. And he did. That's why we have in Acts 15, the tabernacle of David. It's there. Why? Because David jumped dispensations. Entered into the dispensation of grace by faith through his relationship instead of the blood of an animal. And God accepted it. The lifting of the hands is your evening sacrifice where God will meet with you, speak with you, and touch you. Number six, lifting of the hands is reaffirming your commitment to God. Genesis 14, verse 22, and Abraham said to the king of Sodom, and I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. I'm not going to take even a shoestring from you, but I've raised my hand to commit myself to the Lord God Almighty, possessor of heaven and earth. My commitment is to him and him only. Every time you lift your hands, you're saying to God, you're my God, you're possessor of heaven and earth. I will serve you. I will not let man have any glory in what you provide for me. I am yours and you are mine. I'm committed to you. Number seven, lifting of hands is expressing our worship to God. And you'll find this, which will be next weekend in the teaching. The lifting of hands and declaring God's greatness through the sacrifice of praise and the words of your mouth. There are two Hebrew words prominent for worship. One is the word toda, and the other is the word yada. Both of them mean to give a sacrifice with extending your hands. Both of them. Prominent words about worship. When we lift our hands, we come to a place where we commit ourselves to doing those seven things. Can I hear an amen?